What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, mythology, history, pop culture podcast. You name it, we analyze and discuss it. As always, I am very excited to bring you another episode. It's that special time of year, 2019. The leaves are changing. Reaping day is upon us. We are about to hit winter. The veil between the netherworld and our world is thin. The pumpkins are spicing. And everyone is thinking spookiness and scariness. And we're here to bring you our 2019 Halloween special. And for this episode, it has a certain extra significance. We have done a lot of work in prepping this one. We knew we wanted to do this a long time ago, and we targeted this year as the year to do it, we are going to talk about the creepy, the tormented, the controversial, the uh, divided, the, the groundbreaking ghost story that came from Stephen King and then was adapted into film by none other than Stanley Kubrick. We are talking The Shining. Spooky, scary at the Overlook Hotel, Sidewinder, Colorado. We are heading to the Midwest, to the West West of the United States, to one of the most haunted hotels of all time, uh, and to this amazing story universe put forth by two SKs. This is really, really exciting for us because uh not only is the shining a film that we love that scares the crap out of us to this day every time we watch it but uh Derek and Steve have obviously been working hard on their Stephen King side podcast reviewing The Dark Tower so this felt absolutely right for us to jump into a Stephen King adaptation uh on the podcast for Halloween that feels like it goes hand in hand with the work that Derek and Steve are doing on The Dark Tower and also, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see a sequel to The Shining in Dr. Sleep, also based on a Stephen King novel. Yeah, you know, I put out there a relatively loose and informal poll on my Facebook about, like, what was better, the book or the movie. And, uh, yeah, I learned that that was probably a mistake. Yeah, I saw you do that, and I was like, oh, no, the elevator doors are opening up and the blood's about to pour out. You know, my experience of The Shining, it was, I was a young adult. I think I was a teenager when I first saw it. And my parents sat me down and played it for me because they loved the movie. And I had a really shine, if you will, towards cinema, in particular, the avant-garde and weird. And I, I liked 
complicated movies. So they showed me this movie and it was the first time and one of the few times that I was genuinely deeply afraid watching the film. And uh, I have since loved it. It was one of my introductions to Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker who I've since seen, I believe most, if not everything he's ever made and have become a huge, huge Stanley Kubrick fan and The Shining was my introduction to that. And I'm really excited to talk about the movie. Also in preparation, I have uh, slowly but assuredly become a bigger and bigger Steve King fan to the point where he's one of, if not my favorite authors. So in preparation for this podcast, Laurel and I both read the book, The Shining. So this is going to be a kind of Knowles hold bar discussion I think we're going to focus most likely more on the movie than the book. Yeah, for sure. But we're going to talk the book too. So spoiler wall is up. There is something very special about this movie and this book. It has a legacy that has endured multi-generations. I mean, the movie came out in 1980. Here we are in 2019 and it's Halloween. And I still can't think of a quote unquote better horror movie. Well, and it consistently tops, uh, you know, if it's not the number one, then it's still in the top 10 or top five of uh, best horror films of all time. This is one that people continue to turn to for numerous reasons because of its uh, very subversive and very unusual, unconventional uh, delivery of horror and also just its incredible stance within the, you know, the cinematic canon so it's not just a great horror film, it's a great film, you know, removed from the genre. And genre films can so uh, rarely be recognized for being great films that it's important that we have something like The Shining out there. Absolutely. And it's also worth recognizing that if Stephen King didn't go to a hotel in Colorado and stay there in the early 70s and think like, oh my God, this place is a little fucked up and creepy, maybe it's evil, we would have never had this. And I, I've been thinking about, you know, what I enjoy more now, the book or the movie. And I just want to come out and say that I'm officially on they're both awesome bandwagon. I don't know which one I like more. I think the movie was a at the time a more impactful experience than reading the book now as an adult in 2019. But I can't go back in time and read The Shining as a teenager because I think it probably could have had a similar effect on me and a similar transformative effect, you know, and the other thing that the shining did for me as a film is it really made me recalibrate horror. I watched the shining at a time where I was really into the like late eighties, um, really kind of grotesque horror, really monster drunk, scary, gory horror movies like the Friday the 13th, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the sure. Hellraisers. Yeah. I was really into those movies. And then I saw The Shining and was just like, oh, wait, those other movies aren't really as good as I thought they were. No disrespect to any fans out there. They're fine movies. But I'm like, horror can really do something interesting and different. And I'm excited to talk about it tonight. But before we get too deep down the rabbit holes... A lot of things happening in Midnight Myth news and then in the Midnight Myth sphere. A lot of people dialoguing with us in particular on Twitter. So, Laurel, 
Give us the spiel. What are we up to? What's happening in the Midnight Myth? How can people talk to us if they want to talk to us? So if you want to reach out to us, the best place to do so, like you said, is on Twitter. We are at The Midnight Myth. Uh, You can also find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, if you want to drop us a line on the contact form, sign up for our email list, or learn anything else that you want to know about the podcast. There's also some blogs and extra content there, so it's a great resource for you. Also on the website, you'll find a link to our merch store where you can purchase tees, totes, phone cases, mugs, sweatshirts, whatever you need, especially with the holidays coming up around the corner. Definitely make sure you get your hands on your Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka merch. And the website also has a link to our Patreon. This is a place where you can support the Midnight Myth podcast. We make this podcast for free. We make little, if any, money off of it. And uh, we would do it for free for the rest of our lives, but it really does help if we have a little bit of extra change to help cover our costs. So if you would like to support us, you can do so on Patreon. And at each level of monthly pledge, you'll get an extra perk. So that might be a discount on the merch store, a shout out on the podcast, or a bonus episode. So this is a great opportunity and a great way to help support us and make sure we can continue making the podcast for you. Um, Lots of stuff going on in the Midnight Myth universe. I've been teasing for a couple of weeks that we're going to be partnering with uh, our YouTube friends, the Pop Venture family, for a giveaway in November that is right around the corner. So stay tuned for uh, details on that Star Wars Funko Pop giveaway with Pop Venture family. And if you're on our email list or uh, you're following our social media channels already, you may already have seen this, but we are super excited that we were selected as the recommended podcast of the month uh, by M from Verbal Diorama, who is another podcast that we love so, so much in her new column for the UK film magazine, Film Stories. Uh, This is a fabulous independent film magazine in the UK. If you are in Great Britain, if you're in that area, and you can support a an up-and-coming business that is telling amazing stories, has fabulous interviews, and is up and uh, up to date with all the latest news in the film and television industry. Definitely order your copy of Film Stories and check out that column. Check out what they're putting out there. It's a fabulous, fabulous thing. And we're so grateful to have been recognized, and we hope uh, that we live up to that recommendation. Yeah, and episode nine of The Wheel of Ka has been recorded. Yes. I believe this episode will be posted before the next Wheel of Ka. Yes. But fellow travelers on the path of the beam, refresh your feeds very soon. The Wolves of the Kala discussion will be up. And I will tell you, I'm just going to say this now. I think it was our best work yet. I'm so excited to hear that. I, I really do think every Wheel of Ka gets better and better. And uh, for Stephen King fans and non-Stephen King fans alike, it's still a very informative and exciting podcast. So it should be really fun to have that come out the same week as this, our all Stephen King, all the time podcast. Yeah, well, you know, he is the great American wordslinger. Let us jump into the movie. I think we've gotten into a good uh, flow here where I do these recaps that I try to keep pretty brief. Yeah. Let me recap. I will recap the movie. Um, you know, so if you've read the book, I'm not going to recap the book, but we'll take that as read. 
The movie features the character Jack Torrance, who is traveling to a place called the Overlook Hotel, where he's getting the job as the winter caretaker. His job is to take care of this hotel because during the winter months in Colorado, the snows are too fierce to keep the actual roads open, so they have to shut it down. His job pr primarily consists of heating the, the rooms, maintaining the you know upkeep of the hotel, making sure the place doesn't go to hell. On his interview, he learns that one of the previous caretakers, a man named Grady, went insane, murdered his family with an axe, and then blew his brains out with a shotgun. We then see that uh, Jack has a family. He has his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny. And his son, Danny, talks to an imaginary friend named Tony, who shows him visions from time to time, in particular visions of blood, the word red rum, and an elevator opening to a hallway of blood. They get to the hotel, and very quickly we learn that things are a little more than what they seem. There are various different supernatural and psychological developments that happen from Jack Torrance looking at his family walking through a maze and seeing them in little tiny miniatures even though they couldn't possibly be there. We learn from a character named Dick Halloran, who is the cook before, that he, before he leaves the hotel, that there's this thing called the shine. It gives you the ability to uh, talk to other people that have the shine without using your mouths is the word that they say, but we can understand that as telepathy. And sometimes you can see things that had happened, that will happen in the future, like precognition, or sometimes you can see things in the past. Dick Halloran explains that some places shine and the Overlook Hotel is a place that shines. Bad things that happen tend to linger there, but they shouldn't be worried about them. By the way, don't go into this room 237 in the book, it's 217. Long story short, once the snows come, Jack Torrance goes deeper and deeper into a madness, and Danny gets closer and closer to creepy phenomenon that only he can see, from seeing two little girls, presumably the girls murdered by Grady, to actually getting assaulted by an old woman in room 237. This happens and coincides with Jack, who is an alcoholic who dislocated his son's shoulder in a drunken rage, who is using this caretaker experience to, one, recover from his alcoholism, and B, get back to writing. He starts hallucinating slash interacting with ghosts and drinking alcohol. All of this will then boil up to the point where Danny tries to summon Dick Halloran with his shining abilities. Halloran comes, only to find out that Jack Torrance is in a murderous rage, kills Dick Halloran, nearly kills Jack and Wendy, the wife, and they narrowly escape. Jack gets frozen to death. And the final shot of the movie is a picture from 1921, clearly showing Jack Torrance in the picture as part of the Overlook Hotel at a July 4th party. Great recap. Thank you for uh, you know revisiting all of those creepy occurrences within the Overlook Hotel. Um, it, it, this is an amazing movie. This is a, one of my favorite movies. Uh, definitely, I think, my favorite horror movie. Um, something that I can just go back to again and again when I'm looking to get creeped out. Uh, and an incredible character study and uh, a, an amazingly ambiguous story. I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to it again and again is because there are so many different ways to interpret it. So many details. It's Kubrick. You know, you're always going to find some meticulously plotted detail in the corner of a shot somewhere that will keep you coming back for more. 
Um, you teased in the beginning that we have this story because this guy, Stephen King, happened to stay in this hotel in Colorado uh, one night and had some creepy dreams, and because of that, he created The Shining. The actual hotel that he stayed in was called The Stanley, uh, and that's in Estes Park, Colorado, which is a great town. I've actually been there, and you can see the, uh, the Stanley Hotel, the overlook, sort of looming over the town. And it was also built in the early 1900s and has its own creepy, scary history. Uh, it's, it was built by the Stanley Steamer guy, so that's where it comes from, is this kind of uh, steam industrial tycoon from the early 20th century. And uh, room 217 of the Stanley Hotel is the presidential suite and has a number of ghostly haunting occurrences that uh, you know, run throughout its past. But uh, the great story about Stephen King staying there is that for some reason, he and his family were the only guests in the hotel that night. So just like Jack, Wendy, and Danny, they're the only people wandering the halls of this enormous palatial place with just a couple of staff members trying to stay out of the way. And that night when they stayed there, Stephen King had a dream that his son was being chased through the halls by a fire hose that looked like a serpent. He woke up from that dream, lit a cigarette, and looked out the window, and he has a quote where he says something like, by the time the sun rose, I had the bones of the book set down in my head. It's a kind of wonderful story, and it takes Stephen King away from his uh, New England setting and into the same kind of place where the Donner Party got stranded. And the film takes that to a new level where we see the tension between this massive, enormous manor, like this huge hotel, which could not be bigger and could not provide more opportunities for entertainment or space or spreading out, and yet it feels like the most claustrophobic space you can imagine. Somehow, both King and Kubrick are able to accomplish something uh, so contradictory by making this big space, the smallest, tightest quarters, a place where you can experience cabin fever. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so scary is because it plays in these opposites. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm glad that you pointed that, that out and that it plays in these opposites. I, I think one of the geniuses of the entire Shining narrative, whether you're pulling from the book or from the movie, is the reversal of the standard horror tropes. Yeah. And what I mean by that specifically, a standard family encounters a haunted house. Think of the poltergeist. Sure. Right? It's usually the father that ends up having to stand up to the ghosts and be the protector and save the family. This inverts it. It is the father who succumbs to the temptations of evil and then becomes the antagonist. They're trying to literally destroy the family that he has sworn by sacred oath of marriage, by all of the natural and moral laws that we have, by all of the ethical legal standards that we have to protect. He becomes the very thing trying to destroy them. There's this great, big, humongous hotel that should feel sprawling and open and people should have room to, to like move around and stretch their legs that becomes claustrophobic and contained. There is a child who's supposed to be innocent and need to be protected 
who's the one that has to stand up and fight his own father and fight these own monsters, has to be the one that summons Dick Halloran to come and try and help them. So there's this huge reversal of what you think of of a standard horror movie, a dark place, a hallway where the father and the son are creeping and something jumps and the kid runs and the father says, I'll protect you and stands up and fights. Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick are too smart to think we should be scared by that. They upend those tropes. They upend those standard horror story narratives and tell something that is so fundamentally and deeply creepy that it is a life-changing experience, in my, in my opinion. Not to oversell it, but it does. it fundamentally recalibrated what I thought of an entire genre, which is a lesson that I have carried forward to this day. Well, I think that's a really interesting point because you're absolutely right. Our POV character, at least our primary POV character, is Jack Torrance. He's the one that we probably spend the most time with, although there is some division of point of view between Wendy and Danny as well. And yet he's the one that we watch slowly transform into a monster. And that is subversive. That is unusual for horror film especially, but horror fiction in general. What I think is really interesting about that is that The Shining isn't the first to do it. It's just something that hadn't been seen in a while. Um, And this is going to get me kind of into uh, both King and Kubrick's literary influences. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, where this fits in the legacy of literary and fictional horror. And that starts with Edgar Allan Poe. He's the the amazing writer of Victorian Gothic. I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's work, whether it's The Raven or The Fall of the House of Usher or whatever you had to read in eighth grade. Um, But there is a very clear influence from one of Poe's short stories on The Shining. But just as like a general intro to this, Uh, Stephen King has mentioned that Edgar Allan Poe was a big influence on him before, and one of the reasons he was, one of the reasons he liked reading Poe was that Poe would often cast these flawed, bad individuals as the uh, heroes or the protagonists of his narratives. So think about like the Telltale Heart, which is about a guy who murders someone and stashes his heart under the floorboards, and then the guilt drives him insane. So this is definitely an influence from centuries before that is bleeding into what Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick are doing. We're watching a flawed and um, vulnerable person succumb to feelings of guilt, succumb to feelings of insecurity, succumb to uh, his worst impulses in this environment. And that's something that we can trace back to at least Victorian Gothic. So I just thought that was a great point that you brought up. But anyway, uh, Stephen King in the text of The Shining explicitly multiple times references one particular short story by Edgar Allan Poe. He starts, uh, he prefaces the entire story with a quote from it, and then he mentions it several times throughout. And I do believe, and I'll give a couple of examples of why I believe this, that Kubrick is also working off of the same story, uh, at least in a couple of ways. And that story is called The Mask of the Red Death. Uh, This is a short story that Poe wrote in 1842 that uh, is usually perceived as an allegory about death. And it takes place in a sort of vaguely 
medieval Renaissance Italy, uh, but it's very airy. It's very much of no time or place. It's very timeless. Uh, it concerns the main character, whose name is Prince Prospero, and it's in a time where a plague called the Red Death is ravishing the countryside. And the Red Death is characterized by just profuse bleeding from your pores. Within an hour of contracting it, you're dead. So Prince Prospero and 1,000 of his uh, noble knights and ladies and men from his court hole up in his castellated abbey to just wait out the storm. They're like, let's take off to the castle. We'll seal all of the entrances so that the plague cannot get in and we'll party. So he hosts a masquerade ball that goes on forever and ever while they wait out the plague. Now, while they're reveling, nobody notices that a mysterious masked figure has been moving among them from room to room. And while everybody is kind of dressed in a spooky manner, there are, uh, Poe calls them phantasms, as though they're dressed in sort of ghostly attire. This one particular figure is clearly dressed as the Red Death. He's wearing burial shrouds. He's got blood all over his face. And once people take notice of him, they're like, this is really in poor taste. Yeah, yeah not cool, bro. <laughs> yeah. So when they finally notice him, Prince Prospero seizes the figure and unmasks him, only to find that there is no one inside the mask. It's completely empty. And then suddenly, all of the masked revelers start dropping dead of the plague. The final line of the story is wonderful. It's, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Just a really creepy, spooky atmosphere here. Love it. One peculiar detail about the uh, castellated abbey that they're all holed up into that I love is that every single room is painted in like a monochromatic manner. So there's a red room, a white room, a black room, a violet room. They're all one color. Now, if you're looking for it, during the climactic final scenes of The Shining in the Overlook Hotel, you'll notice that Jack chases uh, Danny through a completely green room and that Wendy is running through uh, some blue apartments and that there is a red hallway that she runs through later. And also that, of course, the name of the bar uh, that and the ballroom that Jack has been drinking in is called the Gold Room, and it is decorated uh, mostly in gold. So I think that's definitely an explicit reference to the Mask of the Red Death there. Usually those colors are meant to represent different uh, emotions or elements of the human psyche, so people passing through different psychological phases. Yeah, well, we also do see in the movie the... Uh, the ghost of a character in a dog costume yeah. performing a, a, a going down... A sexual act, Yeah, yes. a sexual act on someone else who's not in a mask. We also see at one point uh, Jack is just walking towards the gold room and we see the party and it looks like it's just a great big party is happening there. And in the book, it is very much a masquerade party that Jack is attending that is talking about the unmasking over and over again. So I think you're really onto something. Yeah, here. and he repeatedly uh, shares the line and the Red Death held sway overall in the book. So he's explicitly referencing it. But what I love sort of thematically about the connection here is that the Mask of the Red Death is to me like the 19th century version of the call was coming from inside the house, right? So we have all of these noble, elegantly dressed 
uh, just high society people holding up in a castle saying, we can escape death. We will not die of the plague like the peasants and the gentry out there. We have our safe space up here in the mountains, if you will, while the storm rages outside. And yet, the Red Death walks among them. This is very much what I see in Jack here in the Overlook Hotel, because you might think up here on a secluded mountain, maybe we're snowed in, but the doors are locked, nothing evil can get in. Turns out we've locked in the monster with us. The Red Death walks among us. So it's very much uh, hearkening back to Edgar Allan Poe uh, saying that it can get you anywhere, right? Death can get you anywhere. And that's mostly how people read the story, as this allegory for no matter who you are, what station that you have in life, death is coming for you. It is inevitable. Uh, and I, I think that is something that is echoed here in The Shining. What, oh, I love that. Yeah. Where this sort of ties into the historical context of places like the Overlook and the Stanley Hotel, I think is also really interesting. I think there's an interesting intersection there because uh, mostly these giant resort hotels, these grand hotels, are an artifact of the Gilded Age in the United States. The Gilded Age we generally think of as the last like two or three decades of the 19th century in America. And the Overlook was built in 1907, so we're fudging the numbers a little bit, but it's very similar to these grand hotels. The Gilded Age was characterized by massive economic growth and by massive industrialization, urbanization, and especially growth in the railroads. So we had a more interconnected country than ever, but there was also a growing uh, wealth gap. So wealthy tycoons like Stanley, the guy who uh, invented Stanley Steamer and opened the Stanley Hotel in, in the 1900s, were making tons of money off of the backs of low-paid workers. So people with all of this excess disposable income could just hop on a train and go to these grand hotel resorts, take off for these massive long vacations. They had nothing to do and too much money to spend while the workers were toiling away, keeping their companies afloat. So that's kind of where these hotels come from. But I think it sort of echoes again that sense of the wealthy and the privileged cloistering themselves off while the less privileged toil away or face off with economic hardship or plague or whatever is ravaging the countryside. Yeah, and the Gilded Age is also synonymous with intense political corruption. Yeah. It's the era of time in which political bosses became yeah. a thing. So you had local politicians, or rather local political leaders deciding who the politicians would be based upon how the highest bidder and it was a very corrupt time in American history. It's also the rise of gangsterism in America, where you would have such lawlessness in this new urbanization with the Gilded Age, and you'd have cops that and police forces that were either corrupt, inept, or both, not willing to do anything, where people started forming gangs to protect themselves and to defend their turf and territory, which led to the rise of organized crime in this uh, in the country as well. So all of these things happening in this era of time by which we see the Overlook Hotel um, and the Overlook Hotel kind of being somewhat of a symbol of, a symbol of gilded America, a symbol of political 
economic, moral corruption, a place where people are supposed to go and have a good time. This is supposed to be the high society, but that fucking high society is covered in warts. It's based upon corruption. It's based upon oppression. It's based upon suppressing labor. And in this hotel, terrible things happen. And those things linger like the smell of burnt toast. Yeah. And, you know, those things, these actions that people have in this hotel, they tend to stay there rather than dissipating. And I think that's an interesting idea for us to talk about when we think of what makes a haunted house a haunted house. Right. Because in many ways, the basic bones of the story, as Stephen King said when he was smoking that cigarette after his nightmare, was that this hotel is haunted. Yeah. And because it's haunted, things happen. So what actually is a haunted house? The idea of haunted houses, as we've talked about in preparation for this podcast, they go back as far as we can find to the Roman Empire, where we see the first discussions of a place being haunted. But it sort of makes sense in a sort of um, very simple, dualistic version of the world. If there's a place where you can go that's blessed, where the gods or God have blessed a place that is uh, both um, healing and rejuvenating, whether that's a spiritual healing or depending on your beliefs, a literal physical healing, a place where you can go to feel good spirits. Wouldn't it make sense that there's a place for evil spirits, right? A place where a dark arc, a dark act is more likely to happen. Don't we all have this common idea of an area that's cursed? Doesn't every small town in America have that place where children are like, don't go over there. That's the cursed area. Something bad would happen there. And that is the area, the sort of soup where the haunted house comes from. And what we have in the overlook is like a haunted house magnet. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's a haunted house times a thousand. <laughs> it's just, because it, it's not a haunted house. It's a haunted several houses. Yeah, it's a haunted hotel, which means people have come and go for generations. And more often than not, it's a place where people go to not be at home. So people don't behave the same way that they do at home. Thus, there are sort of the scars of these uh, sometimes taboo acts or sometimes just uh, unusual or unconventional behaviors. So you mentioned the man in the dog costume performing the sexual act on the man in the tux. That would have been a social taboo in the time. So it leaves this sort of mark of this uh, uh, very strange behavior here in this hotel. But then you've got, you know, this 1920s party where everyone is drinking Advocat, this, uh, this liqueur, during Prohibition. You have all of these social and legal taboos that are happening in this place because it's not home. And that leaves this sort of smell of burnt toast around. Absolutely. I, I want to discuss some uh, another, just a pivot, if you'll permit me. What do you think The Shining says about evil? Now, I have prepared a little bit about this. But before I jump into what I have, what my thoughts are on this, I do think the Shining, and let's, let's specifically focus on the movie first. Maybe we can get to the book if time permits. But what do you think the movie says about evil? 
I think that's a really great question, and I think this is something that uh, Stanley Kubrick as a director has dealt with in a few of his cinematic projects, or at least the question of what is human nature, and is human nature inherently good, inherently evil, or is it even a, a worthwhile thing on this earth? I think it's something that he's very interested in interrogating, kind of who we are and what uh, value we bring to the values of, of the universe. And I think where The Shining lands, because we watch Jack Torrance, who begins as a deeply flawed individual with a history of uh, what most people would call abuse and is a recovering alcoholic and clearly somewhat of a narcissist. We, we open with a guy who is not a good dude by any stretch of the imagination. And he doesn't have a strong relationship with his family. He almost feels like, uh, it feels like they don't know each other. Like there's no chemistry between any of, um, uh, of Danny or Wendy and Jack. Like it just does not compute as this is a family that loves each other. It's a very strange dynamic. Totally agree with that. Um, which I think is intentional and is, is very important in, in creating the, the sort of interesting character triangle here at the Overlook Hotel. But what I think Kubrick is saying about evil um, or at least what Kubrick is saying about Jack is that the seeds of good and the seeds of evil are inside all of us and that we have the ability to go one way or another, but that uh, it, it comes from within. Um, I, I think that we slowly watch Jack become a monster. He doesn't start out as father of the year, but he's predisposed to uh, descend into this murderous madness and we watch that come from within Jack. We watch his desires, we watch his failures uh, plant the seeds of what he becomes. So in other words, you look at Jack not a victim of the evil of the overlook, in other words. Right. You look at Jack as more a participant in the evil of the overlook. Yeah, and I think the the best way to understand that is that Jack was headed for um, maybe not you know grabbing an axe and trying to murder his family, but he was headed for a despicable end no matter what. Whether or not they went to the Overlook Hotel, Jack would have abused his family or uh, done something awful in the future. This was just the thing that pushed him over the edge and sent him to where he was. Yeah, interesting thoughts there. I, I really like where you're going with this. You know, the the discussions around evil as we know it, they are ancient. People have been discussing why evil things happen. In particular, this gained philosophical traction in the late Roman, early medieval period as the rise of monotheism occurred. Right. If you are a ancient pagan and you're asking, why does evil happen? It's a little easier um, to explain that away because you can say, listen, man, you didn't make that sacrifice to Poseidon, so he created an earthquake and leveled your town. Right? That's why that evil happened. That earthquake was because Poseidon was pissed off. Right. Now, whether or not the, you know, the sophists and philosophers and um, you know, the statesmen of the ancient world really believed that to be true or not, it was a matter of debate. Some maybe did, some didn't. But at the very least, evil happens in the ancient pagan sense because the gods are angry. And if you've made the gods angry, then there's evil. The rise of monotheism, it complicated this 
because in in particular the early Christian monotheism, the idea was that God was not evil, that God had three characteristics, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, pardon me, and morally perfect. So if God is omnipotent, can do anything, omniscient, pardon me, knows everything, and morally perfect, meaning completely predisposed to avoid evil at all costs, why does evil exist at all? And there is a bit of a logical proof here that is um, thought about and often used to poke the hole into the existence of God. Right. And there are seven points. One, if God exists, then God is omnipotent, omniscient, that's a tough word for me for whatever reason, and morally perfect. Two, if God is omnipotent, then God has the power to eliminate all evil. Three, if God is omniscient, then God knows when evil exists. Four, if God is morally perfect, then God has the desire to eliminate all evil. Five, evil exists. Six, if evil exists and God exists, then either God doesn't have the power to eliminate all evil, or God doesn't know when evil exists, or doesn't have the desire to eliminate all evil. Seven, therefore, God doesn't exist. And it's a it's a pretty solid logical proof. Now, yeah. There are philosophers and theologians that have debated every single shred of this, and I am not going to pretend to be an expert in this. Um, there are some thoughts uh, uh, that I think this movie presents within that. If we can understand that there is a haunted house, that means that there is a version of life that exists after your corporeal form dies, that there's some sort of way for the spirit to endure post-death and that that spirit can actually still act and make changes to the physical matter of this world, right? That's the fundamental logical presupposition of the haunted house, of the ghost story, right? There are ghosts, they can do things, they can pick things up and move things around, and sometimes they can possess other people and get them to do other things, if there is a if it is true that there are ghosts and that there is life after death it would seem at the onset it seems more true that there is a god right because if there's life after death well how is that possible without there being a god who has created life before death and that life is just this little sort of transition port point in between but then we get into the problem of evil now, famously, St. Augustus, who is a late Roman theologian, did what is considered in Catholicism the definitive answer on this. And it's debatable whether it's true or not, because a lot of people said, well, hey, of course there's evil. Why? Because there's Satan. Evil comes from Satan. Easy answer. But that actually doubled down on the problem, because then the question became, well, there seems to be a little more evil than good in the world so Satan's more powerful than right. God? Right, is Satan more powerful than God? Like, Shouldn't who we, would win in a rap battle for the universe? Should we not then worship Satan? Isn't Satan the real God? So that was very problematic. And I don't think ancient Catholic theologians wanted to worship Satan, but they recognized the sort of uh, logical loophole they were in trying to understand their theology. And St. Augustine, very complicated, very interesting human being, but it came down to this. Evil comes from people. It is not God who creates evil, nor is it Satan. It is that Satan 
understands people have choice. People are fundamentally free to make choices. And so let's understand some of Jack Torrance's choices, because I think that's instrumental to understanding how the movie portrays evil. So choice one, he chooses to seclude his family in this hotel. Why? Because he's an alcoholic recovering from the fact that he abused his son. It's pretty selfish. Face value. Right. And he wants to, you know, work on his writing project. Two, he wants to work on his writing project. Very selfish thing. Three, we see right from the gate how deeply annoyed he is by his wife and how much he wants to just essentially psychologically abuse her. And then I think it is, I think if we look at that family unit, Wendy, Danny, Jack, I think the hotel, if we understand it as a haunted entity, sees Jack as the weakest of the three and exploits his weaknesses, his impulse to anger, his impulse to self-destruct through alcoholism, his straight-up dislike of his own wife, his ambivalence towards his son. And I think Jack walks up to the line of evil. He looks it in the eye, and what does he do? He jumps into the evil. And I think the movie is saying that evil comes from people. That even when confronted with this evil place, innately evil place like the Overlook Hotel, Danny doesn't succumb to it. Wendy doesn't succumb to it. But Jack does. Why? Because Jack is the one that can, can that makes the choice to... Because Jack is the one that's the weakest... He's the one that can make the bargain. He talks about how he has a contract with the hotel, very reminiscent to the idea of the contract with Satan. Do you have any idea what it means? I signed a contract. What would happen to me if I broke this contract? He's made a bargain with this hotel very early. Yeah, he literally says I'd sell my soul for a glass of uh, bourbon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it is fundamentally about Jack and Jack's choices that drive the evil, that ex- that like accentuate the evil. And I think when it comes to the discussion of evil, at the very least, I don't have the answer to the problem of evil. However, I think the movie is saying it comes from humans and humans and their choices. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, in the, the first meeting between Jack and Ullman, the manager of the Overlook Hotel, when he's first giving him the Uh, sort of overview of what the job entails and tells him about uh, the previous caretaker who went mad and killed his entire family, Jack looks him in the eye and says, that's not going to happen with me. The movie is literally telling us what is going to happen at the end of this movie. It's telling Jack what's going to happen. It's very, it's like a Greek tragedy. It's very much like the Oracle at Delphi saying, Hey, Oedipus, you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And Oedipus being like, no, I'm not. I'm different than all those other people who succumbed to the Oracle at Delphi. Uh, we, we know what's coming. It's barreling toward us like a freight train. And yet we still have to watch this person uh, with the knowledge of that in the future continue to make the choices that lead him to that very end. It's, uh, it's, it's, literally is like watching a car crash. You cannot look away as this person very slowly jumps headfirst into a tragic fate. Yep. What do you think about the 
the shining in relation to evil. Because I feel like King and Kubrick are dealing with a bit of a duality here. The idea that there is this evil place called the Overlook, and it's juxtaposed by this psychic ability called the shining. And that there's this character who can read minds, he can have visions, he's precognitive, he can see things in the past. So you have this great power in Danny meet this great power in the hotel. And I think it's interesting that Danny as the good is a child and the hotel as the evil is an inanimate place. You know, and I think there's some interesting symbolism there and that, you know, the way I personally read it is that there will always be this counterbalance. Whether, you know, the hotel will be at its evilest when it has its most powerful person of good there. And that most powerful person of good there is going to come from an alcoholic, abusive father. Right. And yeah. There are these sort of tent poles that kind of cosmically balance each other out. Yeah. Well, and you bring up that it's, you know, a fight between uh, a child, an innocent, like five-year-old kid on his little plastic bike running through the hallways uh, between this little kid and this uh, monument, this uh, sort of... Uh, this artifact that has stood for decades, uh, this inanimate object, but something that is full of the scars of uh, of people, of adults and their choices. So we have sort of the, I, I don't know, I'm kind of working this out in the moment, but it's like if, if the ultimate evil is this establishment, is, uh, you know, the past, is the ghosts of the past, if you will, and all of the mistakes that they made, then the embodiment of good has to be a child who is just the embodiment of potential energy, someone who still has the opportunity to make a good life for himself, to make good choices, to probably mess up along the way, but to uh, you know, more often than not veer on the side of empathy and love. I think it sort of builds these two... Um, opposing poles between the past manifest and the future manifest in a child. I love that read that. I, I think that's very spot well, on. And that's literally just coming to me in the moment. So I don't know if I fully worked it out, but well, no, I mean, it does. It, it makes sense. The hotel and what the evil of the hotel is that it lingers on to the sins of the past. So a woman dies in room two thirty seven tragically in a bathtub. Right. And she still is there there's a party in which people have died and, and that they literally are lingering and still there. You can turn a corner and suddenly the, where you would see a lobby full of people, it's full of cobwebs and skeletons, you know, that there's someone standing at a party with an ax down their head. Yeah. These two little girls who got slaughtered are just trying to out there talking to Danny. Just trying to have somebody to play with. And, well, I think they're also trying to yeah. lure him into that evil for forever and ever and ever. Yeah, yeah. But well, it, make, it makes sense that the hotel is an embodiment of a relic of the past. It was built in the past. And then here is this child who is nothing but potential and, and potential towards the future. And that it is trying to rob that future by convincing Jack to kill his family. Well, and that future very well could be just growing up to be exactly like his father. So Danny has, a, you know, we, we don't get to see this kid grow up, so we don't know what he's going to be like. But I think the Yet. film is also 
uh, very interested in uh, cycles of abuse and when those are perpetuated. Uh, And I think just following this down the sort of path of the overlook representing the ghosts of the past, one of the more like famous uh, close readings of this film is that the overlook is very much a metaphor for uh, imperialism, colonialism in America, um, and with the fact that it's built on an ancient Indian burial ground, and there is all this Native American imagery in the lobby and the decor, there's this sense that it's uh, the perfect manifestation of atrocities that were committed in America's past that have been, quote-unquote, overlooked. So uh, I think it's, it's all working in that same vein of the past being something that exists uh, still in this format and lives with us right now, lives with us all the time, uh, we just sometimes choose not to look at it, and we have to choose to look at it. Interesting, interesting read on that. Um, you know, and I think there is, there, I think there is something to be said about that. I mean, the as the history guy, the resident history guy here on the podcast, yeah. I do fundamentally believe that human actions happen in a causal link and chain. And if you want to understand where you are, you have to look at where you came from. And hopefully that can inform you to get to a better place for tomorrow. And it is a point of historical fact that most contemporary Americans living don't really want to reconcile with our imperial history and our history of slavery. Those are things that we tend to want to be like, yeah, well, that happened before, but it doesn't really matter now. And um, you do get to see some imagery in this movie that could suggest that reading. And I, I think it's it's valid, but I do think the movie hones on to the individuals and the individual psychology yeah. rather than making a broader sociological point, at least in the way I read it. Or at least a, a really specific and explicit one. I think we can draw the metaphor that what happens in the past can linger like burnt toast and that can have reverberations. Um, I think in the movie, it's very specific to spirits and individuals rather than um, sociological movements. But they do take the moment to say it's built on an Indian burial ground. And it is kind of fucked up to build your, you know, white pleasure palace (laughs) on the graves of the indigenous people that you, you know, your ancestors slaughtered to have. So that is really fucked up. That's just a fucked up detail to just to be like, yeah, this was a sacred ground to some people, but we killed them all. So who cares? And then walking through the lobby. Oh yeah. These are original Navajo and Apache artifacts that we just have decorating our lobby so that we can all walk by and think, Oh wow. Look at this quaint, authentic thing from this people that we slaughtered. Like it's, it's crazy. And yeah. So I do think there's a way to read that, but I, I don't think Textually speaking, like just from the the movie itself, that it really telegraphs that point. I think that is something you got to dig for, you got to look for, and uh, um, I, and I don't think you're that's a quote unquote incorrect reading, but I don't think it is the authorial intent. If that makes any sense. Oh, okay. I mean, that's totally fair. I mean, it doesn't feel like a movie about colonialism to me. Well, even if you don't think it's explicitly about that, it is a layer, uh, and I think that layer serves to thematically enhance uh, what the movie is working through on other layers. I think that's a, that's absolutely correct too. Yeah, that's that's a it is a fun way 
in an interesting way to engage with this movie and to reflect on it and reflect on some of the imagery and reflect on some of the subtext. Totally. I'd really like to spend a little bit of time to understand the last uh, shot of the movie and to kind of reflect on what exactly that means. And I think we can retroactively, based upon what we think of that shot, reflect on what the entire movie means. But actually, before we do that, yeah, we both agree that the reading of The Shining is that it's a haunted mansion. It's a haunted hotel, right? Because I encountered some that say, no, this is all just in everyone's mind. It's actually not haunted at all. Well, so I personally choose to read this as uh, there there are ghosts, um, but I I I do believe that uh, Kubrick intended a certain amount of ambiguity here, and that's why uh, in the technique and in the way that the scenes with apparitions or spirits are shot, or the state of mind of the characters as they are going into those sort of ghostly experiences. Um, I, I do think it's intended that we are supposed to question what we are seeing here. Uh, we know for a fact that the characters are experiencing a certain level of cabin fever. They're experiencing a certain level of psychosis, if you will. Um, and that Jack in particular is experiencing probably alcohol withdrawal and has a whole lot of things contributing to his state of mind that might be causing him to fabricate these things. Um, but there's no easy answer to whether or not the ghosts are actually there. Um, the scene with Lloyd in the bar in particular is very tough just because of the way that the scene is shot. Um, you could easily read this as Jack is just imagining Lloyd there. And Lloyd, of course, is sort of projected from past bartenders that he has had drinks from. So he's not like the bartender of the Overlook Hotel. He's just from Jack's mind. But then we actually see a glass of bourbon in Jack's hand. You know, we actually see a shot from over Jack's shoulder that looks more objective than subjective. So... Uh, Kubrick is constantly complicating these uh, experiences with the ghostly apparitions. Uh, Shelley Duvall's character, uh, Wendy, actually sees the, the dog man, uh, and that feels very objective, like that's absolutely happening during this climax. But she's also in a heightened emotional state, so how much can we trust what she is seeing? So I think the debate is important. I have my way of personally reading it just because it's something that I like better, but I think that the ambiguity is intended. Okay, and I, I think that's fair. I think there's at least one point in the movie where the ambiguity gets at least peeled away, and that is when Jack has been hit over the head with a baseball bat. He falls down the stairs. Wendy locks him in the cupboard, and the ghost of Grady comes and unlocks him. And I think that is a point where we can look at just the base logic of the film and say that, all right, Jack doesn't have telekinetic powers. No one's had telekinetic powers. There's no one else in the hotel. How does he get removed from that? Right. And I think that's the one point where the only logical option and the only logical conclusion that you can come to rather based upon what we've seen in the film up to that point, is that a ghost let him out. The ghost of Grady let him out. 
Otherwise, he would have been trapped in there. I think to me, that's the one piece of textual evidence that says that lends more credence to the yes, there are ghosts than no, it's all in their mind. Though I do totally agree with the way the movie is executed. It keeps you guessing. That's the point where I'm like, okay, I'm no longer guessing anymore. And I think that's the point that ushers in the third act. Jack now has an axe. He's now going around. He's now trying to kill them. The ghosts are just fully loose. You know, there's no more guessing anymore. This is a ghost story with an axe murderer. Yeah, uh, that's great language that you're using there. It brings to mind uh, the the distinction between terror and horror here. So very much throughout the first like two thirds to three quarters of the movie, we are dealing in terror. And uh, that's the moment, once Jack gets the ax, that's the moment we turn into horror. So this distinction was first coined by uh, Anne Radcliffe, who is a uh, Gothic literature writer. And uh, she basically said that terror is uh, the anticipation of the horrifying event. It's the anxiety, it's uh, it's the dread in your stomach. It's sort of like uh, walking down a hall and having the the dreadful sense that there's somebody hiding around the corner. And horror is the actual response to the horrifying or traumatic event. So horror is the person around the corner actually jumping out with an axe and slashing you with it. Uh, so terror is utilized for the first uh, majority part of this movie to elicit this sense of creepiness and dread in us that is so deeply unsettling and one of the reasons why it is such an enduringly scary film. And then once we flip that switch into horror, it's still scary, but it's a very different kind of scary. It's much more suspenseful. It's much more, will the characters be alive? It's much more like, oh my God, what the fuck's happening? Like your jaw is being, is dropped, you know, much more in that, in that last third of the movie. Yeah. Stephen King has a great quote about the difference between terror and horror that I love to share. He says, quote, I recognize terror as the finest emotion, and so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I find that I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. I'm not proud, end quote. <laughs> fucking love Stephen King. <laughs> it's a great it's quote. It's a great quote. So this is a long way to get to... What do you think the end shot means? I think the end shot where we see Jack in a photo in 1921, I think that's another piece of evidence that there is absolutely something supernatural happening in this. How the fuck is Jack Torrance in a photo in the Overlook in 1921? I'm not supposed to read that it's just a dude that looks a lot like Jack Torrance. Like, come on, that's not why it's there. He doesn't, it's just not a coincidence that Stanley Kubrick spends, what, three minutes doing a slow close-up on that shot? You know, like, absolutely not. Not just because he looks like a dude from there. That's Jack in that photo. What do you think that means? So I marvel at the uh, ambiguity and the, um, the vagueness of this final shot. It's one of my favorite final shots of a horror film ever. Uh, it does so much for me without trying to break it apart. And so I am a little, um, uh, I feel a little hesitant to try to break it apart. Um, well, there's no right or wrong. Yeah. It, yeah. It, give me what you, 
Give me your gut. Give me how you've rationalized. Like wherever yeah. you're at with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the um, the scene between uh, Grady and Jack in the bathroom uh, is a pivotal moment for the film where uh, Grady is the butler at this 1921 party, but Jack realizes he's the guy who murdered his family, who presumably was a more recent addition to the staff at the Overlook. Definitely wasn't from 1921. Um, and Grady says... You've always been here, sir. You've always been the caretaker. I should know. I've always been here. So we've seen this pattern happen before, where a person from uh, the present or the recent past has been sort of absorbed into the timeless past of the Overlook, which is characterized by the 1921 Fourth of July ball. This is what happens to Jack. Uh, Just as Grady says, he has always been here. Uh, the ghosts and the smell of burnt toast is something that transcends the, uh, you know, the space-time continuum. The arrow of time does not exist in the Overlook Hotel when the spirits are alighting. Um, all times exist at once, and Jack has always been the caretaker. Um, so that, that's kind of how I read this. Not that he got zapped back in time, or not that... Uh, you know, everything was all in his mind or not that um, this image is in our minds or whatever. I read this as like time collapses and that's it. He's always been the caretaker. I, I really like that read. I will, I don't, I don't disagree in any way, shape or form. I will um, give a, I think, slightly more simple read. Yeah, go ahead. Um, not, not necessarily as a rebuttal. I think that Jack died at the Overlook Hotel. Yeah. His spirit has now been absorbed by the hotel. Hence, he shows up in the photo. Yeah. And I think that photo is full of ghosts. That photo is full of people. That is just a relic of which the spirits that die there get trapped there and they become ghosts. And they come to haunt. And I think especially those that die under tragic, horrible, and violent ways... Sort of like the the time continuum point that you have there, that the idea that a truly evil act reverberates backwards and forwards throughout time. Yeah. And that, so he's going to show up in that photo because everyone that's done evil at the Overlook is part of the evil of the Overlook. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That evil exists there. In other words, if there were a nuclear war and a new species... Uh, populated the earth and became sentient and intelligent and built, you know, overlook hotels and built a hotel at that point, it would still be evil. Even if the Colorado Rockies, as we know them, that mountain range no longer is a mountain range because the topography of the earth has changed because millions of years have happened since the end of humanity and the rise of the, you know, whatever is the next civilization, that place would be evil it would still be there that there is some element of eternal evilness in that particular spot. Enough bad things have happened that it's always going to have Jack Torrance's. And when you're the Jack Torrance and when you are the person that essentially sells your soul for the overlook, you get to be in the picture smiling. And as the newest member, where is he? Right in the center. Oh, I love that. And it kind of like, I, I sort of want to 
uh, find a way to d to dive way down the rabbit hole of like the space and time physics of evil because it's like okay so evil can transcend time but uh, it's fixed in space I like <laughs> I think it's really cool um, yeah I I just think it's a, a a wonderfully ambiguous ending and I love that we can have these sort of complementary readings of it I also love that um, it's 1921. Uh, that Jack seems to be sort of frozen in, that he has joined the 1921 party that is literally during Prohibition. It's sort of perfect for um, this, uh, this alcoholic character, this recovering alcoholic character. Though we do see that they are drinking at this party. So once again, it's the, uh, the wealthy and the privileged getting to live uh, with different laws and different rules and regulations than the people outside of this abbey that they have enclosed themselves in. Totally. You, uh, you got anything else here before we go to any final thoughts? Um, just, I wanted to, uh, throw out a couple of, uh, of things that we didn't quite get to because holy crap, there is, uh, there's so much to say about the shining and, uh, so many people have said so many things and so we didn't get to every reading or every possible interpretation of every scene, but I just want to call out the performances um, because this movie uh, is an extraordinary work of cinematography and direction and uh, score and music and editing. There's so, so much technique going into all of this, but the performances are really what carries it. Um, Jack Nicholson is inspired as Jack Torrance. He is this extraordinarily theatrical uh, Jack that just leaps off of the screen and strikes total fear in the hearts of everyone who watches it. And I uh, deeply appreciate watching his uh, very specific descent into madness. There is no one else who could play Jack Torrance for me. Um, and Shelley Duvall, I think, is extraordinary in this movie. And it should be, uh, it should be said anytime anybody talks about this that to get the performance that she gave, she went through hell and back, and that uh, Stanley Kubrick, as a director, basically tortured her to get the performance that she gave. Um, so I just want to recognize that, but also, uh, you know, acknowledge that she delivered this uh, this character who is so deeply damaged and so afraid, and I think she she gives something to it that is. Uh, so remarkable. I, I see, you know, a woman who lives in constant fear of either personally being abused by her husband or having her son be put in danger by her husband. And what she what she does for the first part of the movie in trying to uh, keep up appearances or trying to convey that everything is okay, um, and then just to watch that crumble when Jack starts to descend is so heartbreaking and so tragic. Um, I think Shelley Duvall, Shelley Duvall carries it so masterfully um, that I just wanted to acknowledge her performance here uh, and how great it is. I, I just love it. I mean, here, here to that, I think that is absolutely a great point. I think without Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and the actor who plays Danny, who I don't remember. And Scatman Crothers. <laughs> and Scatman Crothers. If you don't have great performances from these actors... Because there are so few of them, you know, yeah. like if you don't have great performances from all of them, this movie couldn't happen yeah. more so than any other detail. They needed to nail it. And my God, do they nail it? And, um, you know, also 
It's worth mentioning that Stanley Kubrick developed Steadicam shots that revolutionized film. So filmographers, cinematographers, film geeks still herald this as one of the greatest shot movies. And I absolutely you know, tend to agree, even though I'm not one of any of those things. Um, the score of the movie is fantastic. And at the end of the day, it's creepy as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is the only movie I've ever seen quite like it. And that is something that I think is pretty great when there is something so fresh and so original in such a non-original subject, which is a haunted hotel. Not an original idea, but to get such originality out of it, truly amazing. I absolutely adore it. I adore the book too. It's Halloween 2019, everybody. Thank you all, Midnight Myth Myth listeners. This has been another absolutely blast of an episode to do. It was a blast of an episode to prepare. We look forward to doing Halloween episodes every single year. And uh, until next time, guys, trick or treat and be kind. Spooky Halloween. Halloween.